Dr. Beisner, it is so wonderful to have you with us. I wonder if you might, before we get into our interview, actually just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to embrace the Reformed faith. Yeah, I would say that the most important thing about me is just that I have been passionate for the gospel of of Christ and the truth of Scripture since my conversion back in 1969. And early on, as a Christian, I became passionate for, and I remain passionate for, one-on-one personal evangelism and for apologetics to serve that. And all through high school and college, I I did a lot of that, took uh, philosophy and religion and classical languages and classical history in college. And everything that I did there was meant to serve my ability to witness effectively and to fill in the potholes on the road to the cross, so to speak, Mm. which I think is what the task of evangelism is. And in early 1980s, I was meeting for breakfast with a a pastor friend once a week. We would pray together, we would read books and discuss them together. And one day he showed up with a copy of Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, in hand, Mm -hmm. and said, Cal, you have to read this book. It will change your life. I had had zero interest in economics, politics, finance, anything of that sort prior to then, and I still had none, and I told him so, and I just said, no, I'm not going to waste my time reading that. And he kept pressuring me for months, and so finally I, I broke down and I read the book. Well, I had read many, many commentaries on the Bible and books on biblical hermeneutics and the like, and lots of philosophy and had studied logic a lot. And And as I read the book, I kept thinking to myself, wow, this really doesn't seem to be interpreting Scripture very well, and these arguments don't seem to be logically valid, but I don't know anything about economics. I wonder if he has sort of messed up his economics as badly as he had his his Bible and his logic. So I did my standard thing. I went to a bookstore and bought a stack of books. Uh, this time on economics, and I read through all of these various texts on economics and decided that Sider had blown his economics at least as badly. The book was very pro-socialist, and when I finished studying those, I thought to myself, you know, if this book is really influential, and by the way, it did turn out very influential. Just a few years ago, Christianity Today named it the most influential evangelical book published in the last 50 years. Oh, wow. Mm. Very sad thing. But I figured if if this is really influential and lots of evangelicals embrace this, people could do a lot of harm with the very best of intentions. And so somebody needs to be writing something of a critique of this. So I began exploring how I might do that. That's what led to my master's degree program under the tutelage of the late Dr. Russell Kirk, who was a great man of letters, a historian, philosopher, political thinker. And I had met him and I learned that he took private tutorial students and told him I'd like to write on uh, biblical theology or political economics. And he invited me to do a master's program under him doing exactly that. So that in turn led to my being invited to work with what was called the Coalition on Revival, uh, which was an outgrowth of the International Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. And with the Coalition on Revival, I was asked to chair a committee on economics. The aim of the coalition was to produce white papers, really, on the application of biblical worldview and theology and ethics to various different spheres of life, uh, law, government, economics, psychology, philosophy, the arts, media, and so on. 
And so I, I agreed to do that. So after the three years and input by about 120 different scholars, we produced our white paper. And then Marvin Olasky and Herbert Schlossberg, Olasky at the time was professor of journalism at the University of Austin, and Schlossberg was author of the marvelous book, Idols for Destruction, which really should have been the most influential evangelical book right. in the last 50, 50 years. They asked me if I would write a book on economics, an introduction to economics from a biblical worldview perspective uh, for the series of the Turning Point Christian Worldview series for Crossway Books. And that's what became Prosperity and Poverty, the Compassionate Use of Resources in the World of Scarcity, which was published in 1988. One chapter of that was supposed to deal with population, resources, and the environment. And as I worked on that, I just told Marvin and Herb that there was no way that the, that, that could be done in a chapter. And so they said, okay, so just do another book just on that. That led to Prospects for Growth, a Biblical View of Population, Resources, in the Future in 1990. And those led to my beginning to be known as a scholar on, call it creation stewardship, environmental stewardship from a biblical perspective. That, as well as my, my work in economics, those two led to my being asked to teach at Covenant College, where I started in 92, taught mostly interdisciplinary courses on the application of biblical worldview, theology, and economics to ethics, to economics, government, and public policy. And Gregory never took one of my courses, but he sat in on one anyway, mm -hmm. uh, a bit. Uh, or maybe more than one. It was fun getting to know each other a bit back then. And uh, then R.C. Sproul heard me lecture one time at a seminar up in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And uh, at the time, he was serving on the board of Knox Theological Seminary. And he determined that when they had another opening there, they should ask me if I would fill it. And about two years later, they did. And so they asked me to come down and be an associate professor of historical theology and social ethics. But I also taught apologetics and almost everything in systematic theology and logic and political philosophy and several other courses as well. So I did that till 2008. In 1999, I worked together with a all-volunteer, <laughs> all of this, uh, you know, on the side, with about 35 other mostly Christian, some Jewish scholars on environmental stewardship to produce what became known as the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship. That was made public in March of 2000. And in 2005, a few of us decided, hey, let's actually start a bit of an organization, very informal, to try to promote those ideas. And by 2007, we had enough traction that it was becoming, for me anyway, the equivalent of about a half-time job. At the same time, I was planting a church for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and serving on the pastoral staff. So I was teaching full-time and pastoral staff close to full-time and Cornwall Alliance about half-time and dying. So I eventually left Knox Theological Seminary when there was a major transition in leadership there. A couple of years later, the church had its own pastor, and I was able to go full-time with Cornwall Alliance from there on out. So that's kind of what got me into all of this stuff. And part of it really was uh, perhaps something that the Lord had done very early in my life. I had lived in Calcutta, India with my family when my father was with the State Department. And there I observed some of the great beauties of God's creation, but I also observed extreme poverty. For six months, my mother was paralyzed. And every day, my nurse, or Aya, took me by the hand to the home of an Indian family where I spent the day because there was nobody around who could take care of me otherwise. And all along the way, I was stepping over the bodies of people who had died of starvation and disease overnight. 
those picture memories along with the picture memories of the beauties of the Indian countryside stayed with me all the time and much, much later, of course, we realized that, that the Lord had given me both of those to prepare me to be concerned, deeply concerned, about both the stewardship of God's beautiful creation and especially the conquest of poverty, lifting people out of poverty. And part of what I realized through a lot of my studies is that you cannot be good stewards of creation when you are extremely poor. You just can't prioritize it. If you can't put food on the table, clothes on the back, and a roof over the head, you don't much care about agricultural runoff or ozone or, or smog right. or anything else. And so real environmental protection is a privilege of those who no longer have to fight the environment for survival. Thank you for that whole background. It was wonderful. And I really appreciate you are making the connection between problems with the environment and taking care of and, and stewarding creation and the necessity for getting people out of poverty and you know making that connection. I think that that's really valuable. We'll have some links to the books you mentioned that are still available. You mentioned being in the OPC at one mm -hmm. point, and I know that you've also been in the PCA. And are you there now, currently? Yes, with a bit of a hiatus in between times, when the OP church that I planted gained its own full-time pastor, it was quite a distance for my my family and me, and so we decided to switch to a church that was nearer to us. And you're in the western Tennessee region? Yes. And what was your first exposure to the Reformed faith? Where mm. did that come from? Well, as I had mentioned, even early in high school, I was witnessing to friends, and of course I would run into objections, and every time I ran into objection, I would run into a Christian bookstore and find a book that would help me to answer that. And over and over again, I kept finding that the answers that were the most satisfactory on theological and philosophical matters were coming from Reformed thinkers. Meanwhile, I was just doing personal devotions also and reading through commentaries, and at one point over about a seven or eight month period between freshman and, and sophomore years in high school, I was having my devotions through the book of Romans. And I was reading, I think, seven or eight different commentaries from various different perspectives. And it was just very clear as I got to chapters nine through 11, that those who were not coming from a reformed perspective were running from the obvious meaning of the text. And so that was when I embraced what was the Reformed faith. But I had been raised, by the way, in the United Methodist Church and really didn't know anything much about denominations or any of this sort of thing. And so here I was, you could say I was Calvinistic in terms of soteriology. And it was about another decade or so before I read a lot more in Reformed work and became more broadly speaking Reformed in not just soteriology, but ecclesiology, uh, sacramentology, uh, the understanding of the relationship between the two testaments, and so on. And then mm -hmm. much later, in terms of political philosophy as well. Classic Reformed conversion story. So I'd like <laughs> to hear. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I wasn't quite so obnoxious as a lot of new converts to Reformed theology. Oh, yes, the cage <laughs> stage. Well, I like, to, I like to say I've never left the cage stage myself. 
Well, speaking of reformed authors and uh, writings that may have influenced you, as you began thinking more about, let's say, earth stewardship and ecology and related questions, did Francis Schaeffer's, I believe it was around 1970, his work, Pollution and the Death of Man, the Christian View of Ecology, come into your purview? Yeah, it did. I think I read that first in about 1982, might have been 83, and I'd, I've read it several times since then. It was a seminal work, but you also have to place it within its own historical context. At that time, the, the word environmentalism hadn't even been coined by then. That wasn't mm. coined till I think, 1973. And most of the environmental movement of the time was concerned primarily about things like rivers that burned. You know, the, the Cuyahoga River in, in Ohio burned for the last time in 1968, but burning rivers were pretty common before that from chemical runoff from industrial facilities. The smog, very heavy runoff from agricultural use of fertilizers and pesticides and the like. Those were uh, the major concerns of most environmentalists, and you had a few who were a bit more, you know, moving toward a more radical direction, like the author of Silent Spring, Rachel Carson, who was particularly concerned about DDT and claiming that it was causing a huge decline in the populations of raptors toward the top of the food chain of birds. Actually, she turned out to be wrong on that and wrong on lots of other things in that very seminal book that came out, I think, the first time in 64 right. and that helped to launch Al Gore on his career as an environmentalist. But when Schaefer wrote Pollution and the Death of Man, there was not anything that you could really point to as what we would call the radical environmentalist movement now. And in fact, the vast majority of the environmental movement today would be described as radical by the standards of that period. Schaefer embraced a lot of environmental thought, and frankly, as it was in the 60s, you know, looking back, had I known then what I know now, I would have embraced much of it then. In terms of analysis of how human activity was affecting the ecology of localities. I tend not to want to talk in terms of the planet as a whole, because frankly, that's just very, very big, and practically nothing that we do affects the planet as a whole in any major way, including, by the way, climate change, but that's a, an issue of its own nowadays. That's the 850-pound gorilla in environmental hmm. matters. One of the things that I have seen as a weakness in much Christian and including evangelical activity, scholarship, writing, speaking, teaching on environmental stewardship is a failure to dig deeply into the science, the engineering, the economics, the policy and policy consequences of the issues that are involved. So that basically what we have is a great deal of, I love God, I love his creation, I therefore want to protect his creation, therefore we need to do this. Mm -hmm. I love God, I love the poor, I want to protect the poor, therefore we need to do that. And there's a huge jump between the first two, I love, I love, and the therefore we need to do this. 
And in that jump, there's an assumption of an awful lot of things about scientific claims of fact, engineering capacities, engineering realities, and economic consequences that just tend not to be carefully examined. A classic example of that, back in 2005 and six, the Evangelical Environmental Network, which grew out of, uh, it was actually one of the original parts of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment, which was co-founded in 1994 by James Parks Morton, who at the time was the dean of the Episcopal Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City, who annually did a baptismal service for animals from the zoo and was very much a New Age type fellow. He and Carl Sagan of Cosmos fame, you know, the Cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be, co-founded the NRPE. And it's rather interesting that you have this New Ager and this atheist Marxist scientist co-founding the NRPE. And the EEN was a part of that. Well, In 2005 and 6, the EEN got thoroughly onto the global warming alarmist bandwagon, and it issued a statement called Climate Change, an Evangelical Call to Action, which was written by David Gushy, who at the time was ethics professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And they managed to get 86 big-name Christian evangelical leaders, college presidents, mission presidents, etc., to sign on to this. And basically what it said was human emissions of carbon dioxide are causing catastrophically dangerous climate change. That is going to harm the poor more than anybody else. Therefore, we must embrace the agenda of drastic cuts in CO2 emissions, replacing fossil fuels with wind and solar and other renewable energy sources. Well, I read the thing, and by this time I had read many, many books and hundreds of articles on the climate change movement and the claims and so on by various scientists. And I just recognized right away that this was deeply lacking in scientific basis. And so with several friends, Dr. Roy Spencer, who was who is still principal research scientist in climate at the University of Alabama in, in Huntsville, a NASA award-winning scientist for his work monitoring and managing the satellite global temperature monitoring system, and Dr. Ross McKittrick, who's an evangelical and environmental economist at the University of Guelph in Ontario, and Paul Dreesen, a Jewish man who's an expert on energy policy. Uh, We put together a paper that responded to that called A Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor, a response to the Evangelical Climate Initiative. And rather than look for endorsements from big-name leaders, most of whom would have known next to nothing about the issues involved, we looked for endorsements from appropriately credentialed and focused scientists and economists and the like. And we came up with 150 initially, and over the years after that, many, many more. And that led to an invitation from a chemistry professor at Union University for me to debate David Gushy, who had authored that statement. And we did that. And this has all been lead up to this as this perfect illustration of the failure of people to fill in the gap between I love God and I love his creation, and therefore we must you know, quit using fossil fuels or something like that. As he and I were walking down the hallway toward the auditorium where we were to debate, he said to me, 
you know, I never realized how complicated the, or complex, I think was the word he used, the science of climate change was until I began preparing for this debate. Wow. Okay, so we really need, as Christians, to distinguish between motive and proper reasoning for what we want to do. And so that's what I've tried to emphasize all through the history of the Cornwall Alliance. It's why we have roughly a third of our almost 70 different scholars now in the network are natural scientists, including some of the world's very top climate scientists. Roughly a third are economists, most of them specializing in either environmental or developmental economics. And roughly a third are theologians, philosophers, ethicists, and ministry leaders. And we try to weave all of those things together so that we are not falling into the trap of best of motives, worst of consequences. If you don't mind, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned that there was a colloquium or a conference of some kind in 99 mm-hmm. that was somewhat the impetus for the organization, the Cornwall Alliance forming in 2005. Is that yeah, right? Sort of. The, the colloquium in 99 wasn't meant to be an impetus to the starting of any kind of an organization. It was just kind okay. of a fun get together, you know, let's I talk, see. right? And we had a great yeah. time, three days, 35, roughly 35 scholars together. But a handful of us afterwards decided, you know, we really had some really good ideas come out there. Let's, let's put together just a two page statement of principles. And it fell to me to draft that. And then we had intended to just do a little almost hobby kind of thing starting in 2000 called the Interfaith Council on Environmental Stewardship. And as a side thing, I was going to provide some leadership for that in spare time. But I didn't have a lot of spare time because at that time I was switching from teaching at Covenant College to teaching at Knox Theological Seminary. I was also still working on my PhD from the University of St. Andrews, and I was raising seven kids. So it wasn't until 2005, having finished the PhD, having taught all my courses at Knox at least three times, and the kids considerably older, that I finally realized, okay, now I have some time. Let's see if we can get something moving here. It wasn't really launched out of that 99 meeting. It was kind of a long delayed uh, outgrowth from it. Well, that answers one of my questions. I was wondering if you had the organization in mind to begin with, but what was it that prompted that original meeting? That was uh, really the brainchild, I think, of Father Robert Sirico, the president of the Acton Institute up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, seriously, it was, let's get together and have three fun days of talking about environmental stewardship from a free market perspective, from a biblical worldview perspective. And there were evangelicals, there were mainline Protestants, there were Roman Catholics, there were even some non-Christians, but still uh, very friendly to the perspective. You may have this somewhere, but I've either forgotten or haven't seen it. Why was it Cornwall? Oh, yes. That <laughs> that meeting of thirty, roughly 35 scholars was at a Roman Catholic retreat center in West Cornwall, Connecticut. 